Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, this week the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community has been presenting the 28th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. We'll look at the life and career of the festival's namesake. We say that uh, Zora Neale Hurston and the Eatonville community are two sides of the same hand. We'll talk about the 19th century biography of Captain Joseph Fry. Captain Fry really holds a, a key position in the history of Cuban-American relations. And discuss Jim Crow railroad cars. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. This song is called Shove It Over, and it's a line and rhythm pretty generally distributed all over Florida. It was sung to me by Charlie Jones on a railroad construction camp near Lakeland, Florida. Uh, that, I gathered that in 33, 1933. <clears throat> when I get in the hill and noise, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line it. Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? In the 1930s and 40s, writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston was a celebrated figure of the Harlem Renaissance. Hurston is best remembered for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the story of Janie Crawford and her attempts at self-realization. Hurston's other novels include Jonah's Gourdvine, the story of an unfaithful man with an understanding wife, Moses, Man of the Mountain, a retelling of the biblical story of Moses, and Seraph on the Swanee, Hurston's only book that features white people as main characters. As an anthropologist who studied under the renowned Franz Boas, Hurston published two collections of folklore, Mules and Men and Tell My Horse. Hurston also wrote dozens of short stories, essays, and dramatic works. In 1948, Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed by false accusations that almost drove her to suicide. By the time Hurston died in 1960, she was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is again recognized as an important 20th century writer. Her work is taught in high school and college classes around the world, and two annual festivals celebrate her achievements. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is held in Eatonville during the last week of January, and ZoraFest is held in Fort Pierce in March. Zora Neale Hurston grew up in Eatonville, Florida, the oldest incorporated town entirely governed by African Americans. N.Y. Nathiri is founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. For Zora Neale Hurston, Eatonville represents the uh, quintessential um, cultural impact that people of African ancestry, particularly rural southern, uh, people in this country um, contribute to the culture of the 
of the United States. And because she grew up in Eatonville, uh, an all-black community, where there was not artificial um, lens of, of viewing people, as she says in, in Mules and Men, uh, you got, in Eatonville, you got what your, what your strengths brought you. Uh, if you were an energetic, uh, aggressive, um, productive person, then that's who you were. Uh, if you were a lazy, no-count, uh, ne'er-do-well, that's who you were, and you couldn't use as an excuse what they or the outside society uh, did to you or against you. And at the same time, um, as, a, as a trained observer, uh, as a person who had studied under Dr. Franz Boas, uh, a father of, Amer of American anthropology, as a person who uh, had access to her native village and that community, she recognized the beauty, the intrinsic beauty of, of the people of her heritage group. And not only recognized that beauty, but was able to present it in a way that others can recognize it. Uh, perhaps not so much during her lifetime with her contemporaries in Harlem, uh, some of whom thought that she was entirely too folksy, but the point is that uh, work that is truly of merit lives and Today, um, Zora Neale Hurston's work, her literature, her genius is acknowledged and celebrated uh, throughout the literary world. Zora Neale Hurston's literary career began even before she graduated from Barnard College in 1927. In 1925, Hurston's short story Spunk was included in a respected anthology called The New Negro. While attending college in New York, Hurston worked with Harlem Renaissance contemporaries, including Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman, on the literary magazine Fire. After earning her Bachelor of Arts degree in anthropology, Hurston continued her graduate studies at Columbia University. In 1929, Hurston moved to the quiet town of O'Galley in Brevard County, Florida, to write her first and most important collection of African-American folklore. Florence M. Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida. Zora came to O'Galley in um, April of 1929, and she, her goal was to find a little place where she could, she could write and she could have peace and quiet. Um, she found that in a one-room cottage here in O'Galley, um, and she rented it. She had a, a pretty good rental agreement and she used that time to fish in the Indian River and to enjoy nature and she put together her folklore stories in a book which was published called Mules and Men. Virginia Lynn Moylan is author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade published by University Press of Florida. The book Mules and Men was published in 1935 and was essentially a nonfiction account of Hurston's adventures and experiences as a folklorist and anthropologist in the late 1920s and early 1930s. It's divided into two sections. The first section is devoted to her experiences in Eatonville collecting folklore and includes 70 of her glorious folktales, including why women 
always take advantage of men. The second section covers the period that she uh, did research in New Orleans into hoodoo religion and practices and even became a priestess. And the book is important not just from the standpoint of its entertainment value, but it was the first book of folklore that recorded the tales exactly as they were spoken. And today it is still considered the preeminent collection of African-American folklore. Eighty years ago, Zora Neale Hurston wrote her best-known and much-loved work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Flo Turcotte, Lynn Moylan, and N.Y. Nathiri. Their Eyes Were Watching God is just, it's an... It's history, it's fiction, it's pathos, it's, it's tragedy, all rolled up together in one incredible literary gem. And it, making history come alive is sort of what, what I like to do and what Zora, that's what excites me so much about Zora is that she, she, she fictionalized real life and said a lot about the human condition and a lot about life in Florida during, during her um, stay here. My personal favorite work of Hurston's is by far Their Eyes Are Watching God. It's a, it's a beautiful novel. It's a love story about a woman who not only finds her true love, but she finds her own inner strength and her voice. And it just doesn't get any better than that. Zora Neale Hurston is a part of my family lore. I did not really understand who she was in the literary uh, realm until I was uh, older. I was actually, I actually read Their Eyes Are Watching God when my, after our first son was born. Uh, that, that book was a Penguin classic that cost 99 cents. And when I was trying to, uh, while my son was napping, I would, that's how I, that's how I read that book. I, I know Zora Neale Hurston from my, my mother's mother uh, telling us about her, her uh, companionship with Zora Neale Hurston, sometimes uh, scaring me uh, with uh, uh, folk tales from Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, in fact, my husband uh, did uh, literary research on Zora Neale Hurston. There are any number of people that were around me over a period of time, uh, but I did not truly come to understand who she was until I read that book and um, then began to reconnect some of the uh, some of the impact that she that she had. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, Zora Neale Hurston was celebrated as an accomplished and sometimes controversial writer, folklorist, and anthropologist. In 1948, Hurston was devastated when she was falsely accused of molesting the 10-year-old son of her former Harlem landlady. The charges were dismissed and the boy recanted his claims, but Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed. And why theory? She was falsely accused of molestation of a, a young boy. Um, falsely accused, completely uh, vindicated because she was not in the United States when the alleged abuse occurred or, or crime occurred. But the black press um, picked up the story after she was vindicated and uh, really ruined her reputation. Uh, I think that she f uh, fled back to her home state. 
After leaving New York, Hurston lived briefly in Miami and Belglade before moving to Brevard County. She moved into the same O'Galley cottage where she had been happy and productive at the beginning of her career. When Hurston was unable to purchase her cottage in O'Galley, she moved to an apartment in Coco and then to a trailer on Merritt Island. During this period, she worked as a librarian. Virginia Lynn Moylan. Hurston was fired from Patrick Air Force Base as a technical librarian, basically because she supported a whistleblower um, colleague who had turned in one of his supervisors for destroying documents without going through the proper authorization. So she collected unemployment for a while and finally was offered a job by a man named C.E. Bolin who had founded a newspaper in Fort Pierce called the Fort Pierce Chronicle. So she moved very soon afterward and went to Fort Pierce to take the job in 1957. Zora Neale Hurston died in January 1960 in the St. Lucie County Welfare Home. She was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Florence M. Turcott. She was a ward of the, of, the, of the county, and when she died, her effects thus were ordered burned. They were ordered destroyed. Um, nobody had come forward to claim them. Um, a friend of hers who was a sheriff's deputy was going by the nursing home at the time and stopped and literally doused the flames and uh, saved a bunch of her um, manuscripts that were uh, about to be destroyed. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is more popular than ever. Annual festivals in Eatonville and Fort Pierce celebrate her legacy. Hurston's work is taught in high schools and colleges around the world. And why theory an Ivy International Baccalaureate uh, teacher of 11th grade students in Hampton, Virginia, is planning to uh, bring her students to Eatonville for a field trip. And as we were talking about the planning and the budget, I said, well, will they be uh, doing Disney or Universal? She said, no, <laughs> we're coming to Eatonville. And that's the only reason that we're coming to Florida is coming to Eatonville. And after we do this uh, day, then we will be returning. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting to see that now, if you're going to be educated, you have to have read Zora Neale Hurston. We spoke with Virginia Lynn Moylan, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, Florence M. Turcott, literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida, and N.Y. Nathiri, founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. The cabin got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm going to take it if it make me mad, I shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you lie now? I shake like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, ah, can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, register for our upcoming annual meeting and symposium aboard the Carnival Sensation, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, you have here a, a 19th century biography of Captain Joseph Fry. Who was he? Well, Captain Fry really holds a, a key position in the history of Cuban-American relations, and more specifically in the history of the liberation movement of Cuba from the uh, powers of colonial um, Spanish governance uh, in the late 19th century. Now, Captain Fry, uh, born Joseph Fry, was uh, actually a native of Florida. He was born in Tampa in 1826, uh, spent his formative years in both Tampa and actually in and around Pensacola. Uh, his father was a, a merchant mariner. His mother was actually of Creole descent. Uh, so he spent a lot of time around the docks, uh, knew his way around a ship. He was educated in upstate New York, actually in Albany, uh, and then later lived in Rhode Island. When he was a teenager, he decided he wanted to join the United States Navy uh, and actually traveled to Washington, D.C. with uh, a couple of pennies in his pocket, uh, according, to, uh, according to the story, and actually met with President Tyler to secure an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy, which he was uh, successful in doing so. He was appointed uh, midshipman in the U.S. Navy in 1841, uh, served on uh, various U.S. naval vessels uh, leading up to the American Civil War. Uh, when the war broke out, uh, he uh, fled south to his uh, home state of Florida, which uh, became a, a, a Confederate state, joined the Confederacy in 1861, uh, and actually served in the Confederate Navy. So he took all of that expertise he had learned uh, while serving in the U.S. Navy and applied that to uh, blockade running. He was actually in command of several ships uh, over the course of the war. He ran supplies uh, from Europe, specifically from England, uh, to the Gulf Coast, which he, of course, growing up there, knew very well uh, and was able to successfully transport a lot of goods and munitions into uh, the South via the Gulf Coast of Florida and Louisiana to help the Confederate cause uh, during the American Civil War. Now, we have here a very old book from the Florida Historical Society archive. It's a, a first edition copy of Fry's biography. Yeah, that's right. We're actually looking at an original printing, first edition, 1874, a copy of uh, Captain Joseph Fry's biography. Now, this is not an autobiography. It was actually written posthumously. He died in 1874, which is, um, again, getting back to the reasons why he's a key figure in uh, Cuban-American relations. After the Civil War, uh, Fry was, uh, had a difficult time finding work. Uh, and in the early 1870s, 1873 to be specific, he found work as the master of a ship known as the Virginius. And this ship was actually sailing from Jamaica to Cuba, bringing supplies uh, to Cuban insurgents who were fighting the Spanish government for independence. Now, at this time in, in the mid to late 19th century, uh, this is a, a common occurrence. There are a lot of uh, former and, and current Spanish colonial areas that were fighting for their independence. Uh, and believe it or not, there was a lot of American support for these uh, liberation movements throughout South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Cuba being so very close to Florida, uh, their ties with the Florida uh, economy were, of course, very strong, especially in the 19th century, and Fry knew that. And many American merchants were very aware of that as well. So Fry took the job as uh, captain of this ship, and, and they were bringing uh, specifically munitions and also soldiers from Jamaica to Cuba to help fight the Spanish government. The Spanish government got uh, wind of this ship, and they actually uh, set out a bounty for the Virginias. They wanted to capture the ship. They did so in October of 1873. 
1893. They brought the ship to uh, Santiago de Cuba, uh, brought the ship ashore, brought all of the, uh, both the crew who were comprised of American and British citizens, brought them ashore, uh, all of the Cuban uh, who would be, would have become Cuban insurrectionists, brought them ashore. And over the course of uh, just a few weeks, there was a military tribunal and they decided to execute all of these citizens. Now, Again, because of the economic ties between the U.S. and Cuba at that time and the popular liberation movements that were occurring and, and the fact that they were so popular in the United States, this caused uh, uproar throughout the U.S. Captain Fry, unfortunately, was among uh, one of the first round of the officers and Americans who were executed in Cuba, and it sent shockwaves through uh, the American press. Now, in 1873, of course, uh, this was a, a difficult time for the United States. We had just come out of a civil war, and the Spanish government, believe it or not, was a very powerful naval force. So the U.S. didn't really want to engage in any kind of serious conflict. We really couldn't afford it. The British government as well. So through some very interesting uh, diplomatic negotiations between the Secretary of State, President Grant, the uh, Spanish officials and British officials, uh, they were able to secure a, a mediation agreement. Uh, essentially, the ship was brought back to the United States. The remaining crew members who had not been executed were all released, and reparations were paid to the families of the uh, officers who unfortunately uh, met their demise in Cuba. Now, did this incident help lead to the Spanish-American War that came along pretty quickly after this? It did, in fact, directly. Fry became known as the Cuban Martyr. In fact, that, that's actually the subtitle of his uh, biography. He was known as the Cuban Martyr. And the popularity for these movements continued into the 1890s, culminating with the uh, explosion of the USS Maine in Havana, uh, which led to a declaration of war against the Spanish government. Uh, and ultimately, we, we call it today the Spanish-American War. So uh, this incident, known now as the Virginius Affair, really laid the groundwork for kind of a rocky relationship between the U.S. and Spain. Now, I mentioned before that Spain had one of the most powerful navies in the world at this time. Uh, and the Virginius Affair uh, actually helped the uh, United States to realize how deficient their navy had actually become. So because uh, of this incident, how close essentially it had come to war, uh, they decided to pour a lot of money and, and resources into building up the U.S. Navy, which again led to uh, the United States uh, successfully winning the, the Spanish-American War rather quickly uh, and, and really kind of changed the course of history. Fascinating as always, Ben. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The Jim Crow laws of the late 1800s and 1900s led to racial segregation in many aspects of American life, including travel on railroads. 
Osmer Lewis, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. Some of those cars, they don't have like a total car dedicated to African Americans because they don't have like a consistent ridership, right? Because African Americans may not necessarily have all the money to ride in the car. So as demand shifts and wanes, the number of seats associated with African Americans shifts and wanes. That was Dr. Julian Chambliss from Rollins College, who spoke with me about the history of Jim Crow rail cars. I got to see an actual Jim Crow rail car at the Gold Coast Railroad Museum in Miami. The car on display explains the story of Jim Crow segregation because it was used as a blacks-only car half the time. When the train reached its destination and was due to return, the railroad company attached an engine to it and it became the first passenger car of the train and a whites-only car for the return trip. The separate was always a misnomer. Like, so our service is equal. Eh, no. Are they separate? Mm, yes. Right? So I think you can always find instances um, that the physical facilities may in fact start out vaguely equal, but the experiences of uh, being on them quickly become unequal. So I hesitate to say that, like, ever separate equal is equal. Dr. Chambliss explains why these Jim Crow rail cars became such an important battleground during the Civil Rights era. I think there's real question about the, the nature of the environment and, and the services and the experience of a ridership for African Americans and, and the inherent sort of like displacement that can be levied upon African Americans. Uh, we see this in terms of buses later on, but I think that same sort of dynamic uh, it becomes very much in the play with streetcars as well because, like, remember, as I said earlier, some of those cars, they don't have, like, a total car dedicated to African Americans because they don't have, like, a consistent ridership because African Americans may not necessarily have all the money to ride in the car. So as demand shifts and wanes, the number of seats associated with African Americans shifts and wanes. Just like many other civil rights battles, the fight for equal railroad accommodations seemed to extend beyond the physical aspect of being forced to sit in a Jim Crow railroad car. And so you run into this question of this kind of intersectionality around race and class, right? So you have middle class people who are black who are fighting against the marginalizing narrative associated with white racist ideology against them. There's this sort of like middle class decorum and acting that black people want to impose on this public space. So they want to be in a space and control that space in a way that promotes the narrative of like black um, excellence and black uplift that will counter this broad narrative that coming from white people that black people are not excellent and they're unable to improve themselves. And because of that, they have to police lower class black people who can be used by white people as an example of how they're not the thing that they're projecting that they are. This becomes a really problematic thing because they, they can be seen as basically criticizing African-Americans who are poor about their social space, which could be interpreted as a kind of racism of its own, but it should be interpreted within this, this sort of like framework of this intersection between class and race. If you look at it, there's respectability question, this civility question that's associated intersect with gender, and this is a real intersectionality around this, that some of the most famous cases of civil rights activism involve women in part because women have uh, that intersectionality around gender, which has these sort of gender norms, which emphasize respectability and civility, 
And so the violation of the female form becomes a way for critiques of sort of harsh treatment, racist treatment, to be amplified in the public sphere. By the end of the 1950s, the U.S. Supreme Court banned racial segregation on railroad transportation, and the car at the Gold Coast Railroad Museum soon went out of commission and eventually on display as a relic of the segregated South. I am Osmer Lewis, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.